This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. It's a Thursday night in May in Southeast Maryland, just a couple of miles outside of Washington, D.C. And on a quiet street in an industrial neighborhood, in a warehouse that's been converted into a gym, a group of boxers are training. Speed bag, weights, a couple of them sparring in the ring. Up walks Derek Curry. He's 51, black, bald with a thick beard and a thick chest. He's wearing a shirt that says TMT, as in the money team, Floyd Mayweather's brand. He works security for Mayweather, and he's just begun training a couple of young, up-and-coming professional fighters for TMT. This gym, though, is his home base. Curry says hey to a few friends, and then we start to walk outside to find a quiet place to talk. You want to sit in my car or your car? It don't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter to me. If you're okay with your car, yeah. you, mine's all the way down there. Oh, okay. so. yeah, you but we're not here tonight to talk about Mayweather or even about boxing. We're here to talk about Curry's childhood in PG County, about his best friend back then and his high school basketball teammate, Jay Bias. Man, um, shit. When you saw Jay, you saw me. Uh, I mean, because me and Jay were like, we were like the one and two punch on our team. You know, we won the state championship together. Shit, after the game, we jumped up on the rim and the whole backboard shattered at Coldfield House. And we're here to talk about Jay Bias's older brother. Someone Curry saw as an older brother, too. Lenny was like, he was the man back then. I mean, he was who everybody in our neighborhood wanted to be like on a yeah. basketball court. Curry's voice might sound familiar to you. We heard from him in episodes two and four. And while I'm eager to hear his memories of getting to know Lynn as a kid, I'm also here to talk to him about something else entirely, about a chapter of his life that came years after Bias's death. Initially, they were talking about life. Then they were talking about 40 years. I tell people, and some people probably think I'm crazy, but when they gave me that time, it's not a day that when I was locked up that I thought that I was going to do all that time. Hmm. I didn't know how I was going to get out, when I was going to get out. 
but I knew that I was not going to serve all that time. About Curry's arrest in 1990 on charges of conspiracy to distribute crack cocaine. About his trial, his time in prison, made so severe because of mandatory minimum sentencing laws. Laws passed in the fall of 1986. Laws passed partly in response to the death of his friend, Len Bias. From the Ringer Podcast Network, this is What If, the Lynn Bias story. I'm your host, Jordan Ritter Khan. We've talked a lot in this series about the panic that came after Lynn Bias died. The frantic efforts by the media, the public, and the authorities to find someone to blame. This is how we got the op-eds calling Bias a dummy. The rush to arrest and charge Brian Tribble. The investigations that led to Lefty Drizel losing his job and Maryland canceling a semester of basketball. But that panic stretched far beyond the world of sports. All the way to Congress, which passed laws now seen as racist and unjust. Laws that have largely remained on the books decades after Bias's death. The summer of 1986 changed America's relationship to drugs, and in particular, its relationship to cocaine. Remember in episode three, when we talked to Spencer Haywood? Remember his stories about the parties in the 70s and early 80s, when it felt like cocaine was everywhere, especially among the rich and glamorous? Well, right around the time Bias died, that was starting to shift. Cocaine was no longer a drug most associated with parties in the Hollywood Hills or the East Village. David Farber, the historian who wrote the book Crack, explains what was going on in the 80s. There's a lot of people who want to take coke, but can't afford it. Coke distributors realize that they can craft this substance, super easy to do, to take powder cocaine and turn it into these little cocaine rocks, which then instead of snorting, you smoke. These small rocks came to be known as crack cocaine. And once it began circulating, crack supercharged the cocaine trade. Because for one, it was cheaper. The coke itself was cut by baking soda and water, which were used to cook the rocks of crack. And second, the high that crack produced was both more powerful and shorter lasting than powder cocaine. So users kept coming back for more. It just explodes all over the United States. Crack actually started off being used by the same people previously associated with powder cocaine. Celebrities, people in the upper and middle class, mostly white and upwardly mobile. But soon, the market began to shift. And it becomes associated more and more with poor inner-city African-American communities, not middle-class Black folk, but poor Black people. At the same time, there's a kind of moral panic about crack. And again, crack is powerful stuff. It does cause a lot of people to lose themselves. So, you know, there's reason to be afraid of becoming a crack fiend. And so much of that fear was driven by racist panic. But white America kind of gets in their head that this will be like cannabis or something, that, that it'll spread into high schools and that... Little Molly and little Jamie will will suddenly become crack fiends. 
Not true. Not going to happen. But that creates all this kind of hysteria and, and political pressure. So by 1986, America is kind of primed to be terrified by the idea that crack's going to come and eat your kids up, even though there's no empirical data to support that. At this point, Ronald Reagan was in the White House. The government's war on drugs had begun under Nixon in the early 70s, but it was starting to gain new momentum under Reagan, almost all of it centering around crack. And then on June 19th, Lynn Bias died of cocaine intoxication. Not crack, powder. And yet... All the tinders there, all the fuels there, people are ready to try to wrestle with this and then poor Len Bias's death. I mean, you know, it's a stereotype or a cliche, but that's the match. And that fire just booms. That July, First Lady Nancy Reagan wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post, framed around Bias's death and warning about the dangers of drugs. It's too late to save Len Bias, she wrote, but it's not too late to save the young kids who idolized him. For their sake, I implore you to be unyielding and inflexible in your opposition to drugs. Bias's death was a major factor in contributing to the panic around cocaine. But other stories had made a big impact in the preceding years. In 1980, Richard Pryor famously set himself on fire while freebasing coke. In 1985, 11 members of the Pittsburgh Pirates were suspended for using the drug. So was MLB All-Star pitcher Steve Howell. And in 1986, another athlete, Cleveland Brown safety Don Rogers, died of a coke-induced heart attack. In 85, public polling showed that the number of Americans who saw drug abuse as the nation's biggest problem hovered around just 3%. By August of 86, that number had quadrupled. A few years later, it would reach as high as 64%. At the time, Eric Sterling was working as assistant counsel to the Crime Subcommittee in the U.S. House of Representatives under New Jersey Congressman William Hughes. Sterling's job involved working with House members to craft legislation, set up hearings, negotiate with Senate staffers, and try to move forward bills related to crime in America. When Len Bias died, my boss came to me and said, The speaker has decided, you know, we're going to go ahead on a big anti-crime, anti-drug bill. The speaker was Tip O'Neill. He was from Boston, so he followed the story surrounding bias especially closely. And with the 1986 midterms approaching, he was looking for an issue that the Democrats could hammer in the build-up to Election Day. And O'Neill, in 86, latches on to the death of bias as the political lever that the drug issue can be the basis for the Democrats to take the Senate back. When O'Neill called for this bill after the July 4th recess, he asked to get it done in just four weeks. And really, the Republicans weren't fighting against them. It was like the two parties were competing with each other to see who could be the harshest in punishing the use and sale of drugs. Here's David Farber again. There's essentially no one opposing the idea of doing something incredibly harsh about drug use and drug sales in the United States. Conservatives, liberals, black politicians, white politicians, they're all on board. And when that happens in Washington, D.C., a phenomenon that we're all familiar with kind of takes off, which is 
if no one's against it, who can be the most for it? You get this kind of bizarre bidding war that takes place. I mean, it's looking back at it, one, it's embarrassing, and two, it's horrifying. Embarrassing, horrifying, and racist. The bill is called the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986. Sterling played a big part in writing it. It's massive and sweeping, but here are a few of the headlines. The bill gave $1.7 billion in spending to law enforcement to combat the sale and use of illegal drugs. It made money laundering, a tactic often used by drug dealers, a federal crime. And it kicked some money towards schools and other community programs to increase anti-drug education efforts. But the biggest legacy of the law, the piece that changed Derek Curry's life, centered around something called mandatory minimum sentencing. Maybe you've heard a little bit about this. Basically, it means that for certain offenses, a judge has no discretion on the minimum length of a convicted drug offender's sentence. Instead, they have to serve at least the minimum term mandated by the law. For example, if someone is convicted of possessing 500 grams of powder cocaine, that person must serve at least five years in prison. It doesn't matter the context. It doesn't matter what the judge thinks about their character or their case. And that five-year sentence they get for 500 grams of powder, they could get the same sentence for only five grams of crack. In Congress, nearly everyone was on board. In September of 1986, the House passed this bill 378 to 16. And when it went to the Senate, they didn't really debate whether to pass it. Instead, they looked for ways to make it even harsher. Here's Sterling again. It was wholly about perception and casting oneself as tough. The need for elected officials in the Congress to put on the mantle of toughness is very, very important. So there's this constant ratcheting up The Senate passed the bill in October. Reagan signed it into law later that month, about a week before the midterms. And as for Tip O'Neill's strategy to inch the Democrats back toward power, it worked. They took back the Senate. They built on their advantage in the House. In addition to the federal legislation, a number of states put very different, but also incredibly harsh, laws on the books. Many of them are known as Lynn Bias's Law. So these Len bias laws are commonly state laws, which provide if you're a drug dealer and somebody dies from the drugs that you've sold, you're going to be prosecuted with murder. You have delivered the fatal instrument that has killed someone. That's right. In about 20 states, you can be charged with murder for selling or even giving someone deadly drugs. And there are prosecutors who style themselves as tough on crime around the country who make quite a spectacle, if not an obsession, about sort of trying to do this. And it's become, in the tragedy of the opioid epidemic, even more widespread. If somebody's selling an opioid contaminated with fentanyl and somebody dies, they want to prosecute the person who sold the drugs for murder as well. So I understand the desire for vengeance. And so the question is, what behavior might it deter? Well, on the deterrence part, it doesn't deter anything. 
We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. When these laws were passed, Derek Curry barely paid attention to them. He was still in high school. He was still mourning Bias's death. But he would experience the full impact of these laws just a few years later, in 1990. After high school, Curry went to Kansas to play junior college basketball. But during a break from school, he was back home in Maryland. There, he spent a lot of time hanging out with another good friend named Norman. Norman was a drug dealer. I mean, I knew what he did, you know, but he never really brought it around me or anything like that. And yeah, I was naive. I'd never been in trouble before, never did anything illegal. My thing was, I'm not doing it, so why am I going to get in trouble? To Curry, Norman was a friend from the neighborhood. Though he admits that he occasionally let himself linger a little too close to Norman's business. I would say I was probably, honestly, throughout the whole year, I probably was in two, maybe three situations that looking back on it, it was risky. Okay. Where like there's something in the car. Right. Right. Yeah. But again, I was just naive, honestly, that it ain't mine. My fingerprints ain't even on nothing. Once, Curry was driving Norman's station wagon, aware that drugs were in the car. He saw police behind him and he got scared. He left the car in a parking lot and FBI agents wiretapped him talking with Norman on the phone. Where the shit at, Norman asked him. In the car, Curry said. And then one night, I was actually at Norman's house that night sleep when they came and bust down the door. They didn't even know who I was initially. And when I told them who I was, they was like, okay, well, he's not on this list. They was like, okay, we're going to take him down anyway. So they took me down there, you know, at course, asked me a bunch of questions. You know, I said, I, I don't, I don't know anything, you know, which I really didn't. Yeah. I mean, I was, how old was I? 19. Yeah, 19. He didn't have any clue what was going on. It was real good. I mean, I had never been stopped for jaywalking. So <laughs> I ain't know nothing about, you know, being arrested or anything. So after that, you know, they end up letting us know what's going on. So I'm like, well, I'm not no drug dealer. What, it, what is a conspiracy and, yeah. you know, all those different things. Um, so, yeah, what, what was the charge? Conspiracy. Okay. To distribute and possess drugs. Okay. Okay. And so... um. You know, it was like, okay, well, I ain't got nothing to do with this. Yeah. What did you feel? Were you scared? Oh, yeah, I was scared shitless. <laughs> yeah, I was scared. Uh, but just the scared of 
of not knowing. I guess that had a lot to do with it. Just just not knowing what's going on or or what. Curry was charged alongside 27 co-defendants alleged to be involved in the same drug ring. After about a week, Curry got out on bond. His mother was a teacher and his father a university professor. So they had access to resources he needed to fight this charge. Though Curry says he was never involved in Norman's drug operation, police and prosecutors portrayed him as a low-level runner or delivery man. Prosecutors weren't terribly interested in Curry himself. They just wanted him to talk. They gave him a chance to take a deal, to say whatever he knew about Norman or any other drug dealers in exchange for a light sentence. And I refused to. And so in the end, they said, okay, we're going to throw you in the middle of this because you're not helping us. And I, I'll never forget to this day, the head prosecutor on my case, I'll never forget his name, John Roberts. We had a meeting, me and my lawyer, and the meeting was he wanted me to cooperate. So he pitched this little thing, and me and my lawyer went out in the hallway and talked, and I said, I'm, I'm not cooperating with the government. First of all, I don't know anything, you know, and... I'm not going to be no snitch or no rat either. My lawyer said, fine, you know, we'll go to trial. He said, but just to let you know, the government has a high percentage of conviction. And I'm like, well, I'm not playing guilty to anything that I don't feel I did. Like I wasn't a drug dealer. I wasn't conspiring to sell drugs. And we went back in the office and my lawyer told him, said, you know, Derek said that, you know, thanks for no thanks. Uh, we're going to go to trial. And I will never to the day I die forget what he said. He said, Mr. Curry, I know you're a great basketball player and you probably will end up playing professional. He said, but the decision you made today, he said, I'm going to make sure that that never happens. That's what he told me. And we left and, and that was that. In that trial, a number of witnesses took the stand some of whom Curry says he'd never met or seen in his life. But the prosecution laid out its case, centering around Curry's association with known dealers, his proximity to seize drugs. And then the verdict, guilty. Oh man, it was surreal. I couldn't believe it. Curry was going to prison. And because of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 and its mandatory minimum sentencing provisions, he was going for a long time. He was sentenced to 20 years. He thinks back to a conversation he says his attorney had with the jurors. So they actually came back and, and a few of them said that if they would have known the type of time in a mandatory minimum crack law, they would have found me not guilty. They thought because I was the first to never been in trouble, they thought that I was going to get a smack on the wrist and get probation or something. Even during his sentencing, Curry recalls members of the court recognizing the injustice on display. My judge, he was like, no, no, this, this is not right. And he actually came to my defense. During sentencing, he said that if it was up to him, he would probably give me probation. When I ask him about his time in prison, Curry's mind immediately jumps to how much worse it could have been. One thing I can honestly say, I never really had it rough in there. I never really had it bad. Um, I hate to say it, but compared to other 
inmate. I mean, I was fortunate to be able to get, you know, food in, had all the latest Jordans, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, my freedom was taken from me and everything, but I didn't have it bad off, so yeah. to speak. I hear that completely. But, you know, for you, you're still losing out. You're missing yeah, out. I, I missed out on a lot. And I used to be bitter. You know, I, I used to be bitter about it, but being bitter is not going to change anything. So the more I stay bitter, I can't move forward with my life. Yeah. Hmm. But it was an experience like no other. You know, being away from family and, again, you know, just that time lost. I mean, that was a lot of years where you missed out on things. You yeah. missed out on what could have been, what you could have done, all those things. Yeah. And for Curry, there was this extra layer of incredibly cruel irony. Just a few years earlier, he'd lost his friend, Lynn Bias. And now, because of a law passed during the panic after Bias's death, he was serving an incredibly harsh sentence behind bars. That's the crazy part about it. But the even more crazy part of it is the way the government covered up to make that law pass. They actually lied and said that Lim Bai died of crack cocaine, and he didn't. Now, just to clarify, I've seen no reports of government officials directly saying Bias did crack cocaine. But Curry's on to something. The national freakout over crack was bound up with the fact that crack users were disproportionately black. And Lim Bias, powder cocaine user, was also black. So these laws, passed during a national freakout over crack and another national freakout over Bias's death, seem to lump all of this together. He never touched crack cocaine. It wasn't crack cocaine. So why would you make a law to punish people for crack cocaine instead of powder? Well, I mean, hindsight, we know why. Because African-Americans were selling crack cocaine and white America was selling powder cocaine. Eric Sterling speaks to this from the legislative side. Even though the accounts that have come out about the party that he had when he came back from signing with the Celtics are very clear that he was not smoking crack. They had bought powder cocaine and they were using, you know, they were probably snorting it and he was drinking. The mythology overcame the reality in talking about, you know, Len Bias, he died from crack. Because crack is so bad and it's so dangerous. In the years after the legislation was passed, Sterling came to feel a sense of regret. He even helped found a group attempting to overturn much of the law. There was an unease doing the work, but the regret became much more intense later when I helped found a group called Families Against Mandatory Minimums. And then working with the family members and meeting children and wives and parents of people who are serving 30 and 40 year sentences for their role in some kind of a drug conspiracy. And to be acutely aware, I'm the midwife of this law, that perhaps if I had been more clever, more shrewd, uh, more knowledgeable, could I have influenced the outcome in some other way Today, Sterling works with Families Against Mandatory Minimums and other organizations with the hope of reversing pieces of the law he helped to craft. 
States passed their own mandatory minimum laws in the 80s, but since 2000, at least 29 states, including Maryland, have made efforts to roll those back. This year, the House and Senate both introduced legislation that could undo the harshest legacies of this law. The Equal Act has been introduced in both the House and the Senate to change the quantities that trigger the mandatory sentences of five years and 10 years for dealing in crack cocaine so that the penalty for dealing in crack cocaine would be the same as the penalty for dealing powder cocaine as far as quantity goes. The Equal Act has support on both sides of the aisle and from the Biden administration. It's far from a complete repeal. Mandatory minimums would still exist, but eliminating the racist discrepancy between crack and powder sentences would be a meaningful first step. And so since crack cocaine is made out of powder cocaine, and since it's the same drug that gets you high, the argument is they really ought to be equal. And so the legislation then would change the penalty going forward so that someone who's prosecuted going forward for selling crack cocaine at less than those trigger amounts would not get the mandatory minimum that now exists. It also would allow those who are in prison for selling those lesser amounts to petition the court to be resentenced. After his arrest, Curry's parents started working with Sterling's organization to advocate on their son's behalf. After a while, my father actually started going on Capitol Hill to lobby in front of the House and the Senate. Near the end of Bill Clinton's second term as president, Curry started to hear that he might receive a presidential pardon after Clinton heard about his case from activists and a Washington Post piece that told his story. He started to feel hope. He maintained this belief that an injustice would be overturned, that he'd never have to serve that full sentence. Presidents tend to issue pardons on their last day in office, so as the end of Clinton's term approached, Curry's hope grew even more. My faith in God, I knew it was going to happen. I, I just knew it was going to happen. Yeah. I just knew it. It was to the point where I was giving my stuff away. What kind of stuff? Oh, tennis shoes, clothes, uh, food. I mean, I was literally giving it away to where I had a little bit of stuff to hold me, but I knew that day was coming. On Clinton's last day, in January of 2001, eight years into Curry's prison term, his father came to visit him in prison. Together, they waited for news. He was nervous. He was nervous. I said, Daddy, look, we all right. Calm down. And he was just on pins and needles. But the whole prison, the whole staff, everybody knew what was going on. So literally every family that came in there was like, you know, have you heard anything yet? Have you heard anything yet? And it's like, no, nah, we haven't heard anything yet. And all of a sudden, the warden came in. And he came in the visitor hall and went over to the office and started kind of talking. And my father's like, well, who is that? I said, that's the warden. Well, what are you doing here? I said, I don't know, Daddy. I don't, you know, I don't know. And then the associate warden. And then my case manager came in there. And it's a weekend, so they don't come in on a weekend. Yeah. And it was snowing. And so he was like, you know, well, what's going on? What's going on? I said, I don't know. But I knew in my heart of hearts what was happening. Yeah. And uh, they ended up calling me over there and said, uh, Derek, come over here a minute. So I came over there. And uh, the warden said, uh, you ready to go home? I said, I've been ready to go home. 
He said, we just got a call from the White House to grant you immediate release. Wow. And so it was just one of them feelings, man. Just You knew it was going to happen, but it was like just this whole sigh of relief just coming off you. And so I went over there and told my dad. He broke down, you know, and we hugged. And uh, I said, man, let me go get my stuff before they change their mind. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back, and uh, I'm walking through the courtyard, and my unit in front, everybody in the windows, everybody. And so uh, I started walking back, and they kind of had a feeling. Hmm. And they just started cheering and banging on the windows and everything. And so uh, I went in there and said, I'm, I'm, I'm free. And so they was like, man, we want to walk you out. The compound was on lockdown. And so, you know, they was like, man, we walking them to the front door. And so the warden, he said, man, open the doors, let them, let them walk them out. Wow. And man, when I got home, all my family, my mother, my sisters and everybody were there and uh, they had food and everything. And shut, I think I might have stayed up all night. I couldn't even sleep. Curry's story has a happy ending. He rebuilt his life. He became a licensed clinical social worker, helping people who struggle with mental illness to navigate the system. He still works that job while moonlighting with Mayweather and training boxers. He still thinks about his own lost basketball dreams. He had some serious talent, and even though the Knicks gave him a tryout after he got out of prison at 31 years old, he never got to play competitively again. But mostly, he feels grateful for the people who fought on his behalf. Curry knows that his situation was unique. He had senators on his side. He got a presidential pardon. But there have been and continue to be so many others serving similar sentences who never had access to those resources. According to the Sentencing Project, an advocacy group working toward decarceration, In 2016, 55% of the federal prison population was serving under a mandatory minimum sentence. When you get out, there's still who knows how many people locked up, also on unjust charges or or with these unjust sentences, at Mm -hmm. least. What was that like for you, like knowing that you've got, you know, probably friends who who are back in prison who are still dealing with all that? Yeah, it was tough, and I I never forgot them. And so, you know, when I got home, I I spoke up on Capitol Hill about the injustices. And, you know, I always mention that it's a whole lot of Derek Curry's left behind that you all have to understand and think about, too. I'm just one person. Yeah, There's thousands of them in there like me. And the mandatory minimums, they're still on the books. When you think about those laws, what comes up? Is it anger? Is it hurt? It used to be anger. And it went from anger to hurt. Because hmm. it's like, wow, you know, you're looking at your own government. Yeah. If you can't trust your government, who can you trust? Next time on the finale of What If, the Lynn Bias story. As it became clear that we were probably going to draft Lynn Bias, you know, it was just, okay, so he's going to be a kid that comes in and comes off the bench and he'll be able to prolong this Celtics dynasty for another decade. 
I don't think it was hyperbole to say that Len Bias was going to be something special. He had all the tools to be a great player for a long time, and he was going to be the bridge. He had the endorsements of the only people that mattered. Like, if, you're, if you weren't sure, well, Red and Larry just told you what they think. So you think something different? Well, then, dude, what sort of an asshole are you, huh? Life is hard. Everybody's trying to make it. But I just tried to let people know, yes, I went through and my family went through, but guess what? You can make it. Don't throw in the towel. And that's one of the things that Len did. What If the Len Bias Story is written and reported by me, Jordan ritter Khan. Story editing by Mallory Rubin. Our producers are Mallory Rubin, Noah Malalay, Bobby Wagner, Hannah Beal, and Isaac Lee with production assistance by Isaiah Blakely. Music and sound design by Isaac Lee. Copy editing was done by Craig Gaines and fact-checking by Kellen B. Coates. David Shoemaker designed our logo. Thanks for listening.